Thank you. It's allergy season. Just might need that. The trump will resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it's well with my soul. Even so, come Lord Jesus. We look forward to that day. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 5. I would just remind you that a week ago, we were in chapter 4, the first half of this glorious vision of the throne room of God and of the Lamb. And the Lord Jesus invites John into this vision. He says, come up here in chapter 4, verse 2, come up, or verse 1, rather, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And of course, he describes that one as none other than God the Father, radiant in glory with flashes of thunder and uh, of lightning and peals of thunder all around, surrounded by these uh, four living creatures, these, these majestic angelic beings, and the 24 thrones that are, uh, that then throne the 24 elders who are clothed in white with crowns of gold on their heads. And these, this white clothing, these crowns of gold, these thorns, these thrones with the Lord Jesus, these are promises that Jesus has made to his churches in chapters 3 and 4. So I understand, I believe that these 24 elders represent the church, 12 and 12, the church of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the patriarchs and the apostles, the church of all time in the presence of our God. And night and day, these four living creatures bow down and worship and proclaim the holiness of God. He's thrice holy. And the 24 elders fall before God. They worship and they cast their crowns at his feet. And they say, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will, they were created and were, or they existed and were created. An amazing, overwhelming scene that John receives in the throne room of heaven. But as if that were not enough, the Lord continues, in fact, and even intensifies the vision as we come into chapter 5. So please follow as I read in verse 1 of chapter 5 to the end of the chapter. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and looked, or went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. 
for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the Lord's word to us. Now, chapter 4, the Lord uh, has revealed to John this throne room vision, and the focus there is on God the Father, but in chapter 5, the focus is on God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, exalted in glory. One of my commentators, uh, he, he divides us up into two points, what John saw and what John heard. I'm not going to quite use that language. First of all, I'm just going to talk about John's throne room vision, and then I'm going to talk about the worship that John witnessed in heaven. So there are a number of things that capture John's attention as he looks uh, at the second part of this vision that are described here in chapter 5. And the first thing is the scroll we see in verse 1, that, uh, that there's a scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And this, this scroll becomes an object of great attention and great concern in John's vision. He, he, it's in the right hand of God the Father, who's seated on the throne. Now, what's the significance of this scroll? Now, there are symbols in Revelation that are clearly explained. For instance, when we speak of the golden bowls of incense in chapter or verse 8 of this chapter, it says, which are the prayers of the saints. We don't have to guess what the bowls of incense represent. John tells us. But what, are the, what does the scroll represent? Some have suggested it's the Lamb's book of life. Our names are written in His book. Those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a, that's a wonderful, uh, wonderful uh, uh, suggestion. I think that clearly that is contained in that scroll, but I think it's far more than that. I think when we talk of this scroll with writing on the front and the back, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, it represents all of God's sovereign purposes for His church. Jesus, remember, said in chapter 4, verse 1, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So the scroll is the account of what must take place. Now, symbolic because you, you can imagine how, how many volumes that would take, but we're talking about glorious symbolism in heaven. And so, one commentator refers, he says, it contains the full account of what God in His sovereign will has determined as the destiny of the world. You might say, it contains God's sovereign decrees. It emphasizes the fact that God is absolutely sovereign over everything that happens in this world. In Isaiah 46, verse 10 and 11 says, I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come? 
I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Scripture over and over affirms the sovereign will and wisdom and power of God. Ephesians 1.11, speaking of our predestination, says that we were predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Certainly God's providence encounter, uh, embraces everything that happens, but I believe of particular interest in this scroll and in the kingdom of heaven is his kingdom, his kingdom people, the effects of all of these events upon his church, upon the saints of God. Psalm 139 verse 16 says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, this scroll is described as, it's, 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 there's writing on both sides, it's rolled up and it's sealed with seven seals. Now, I want to point out, first of all, that book binding, actual, the, the, the process of binding a book the way we're familiar with today, is relatively new. It's only like 150 years old. Uh, now, there were codices, a codex would be a, a, a collection of papyruses that would be bound together in a particular way, so they did form something of a book. Those came along about 100 A.D., all right, so whenever in the Bible you see the word book, you're generally talking about a scroll. You're not talking about a book the way that we carry today. And when Jesus went to the temple and he read from the Scriptures, they brought a scroll and he opened it up. And he didn't have chapter and verse divisions. Those weren't, didn't come along until about the 1200s. Uh, so he had to really know his Bible in order to find what he wanted to read. So here we have this, this scroll and it's got writing on both sides. That's unusual. You think about taking a, scroll, taking a document, you write on the front, you write on the back, you roll it up, and you put seven wax seals on that writing, what's going to happen? You got a problem, right, when you take the seals off. But we're not getting too literal here because we're talking about symbolism. And it's important that we recognize that. There are so many images in Revelation that exceed what we would normally expect to see. Because it's symbolic. It's glorious. But it's likely that this scroll contains an exhaustive uh, account, a record of that which is to come. God's decrees, which establish everything that will ever take place. You know, the Bible teaches us that things happen, not because things just happen. Whatever happens, happens because that's what God decreed it. He decreed not only the end, what was going to happen, he decreed the, end, the means that would bring that about. So his purposes are fixed, like those seven seals are fixed on that scroll. Nothing is left to chance. Nothing is uncertain. Nothing is dependent on what we might do or might not do. Nothing is contingent. It is all absolute in the sovereign plan of God. It includes great events. It includes seemingly insignificant occurrences. It's all written in the scroll and sealed with those seven seals. Now, the, word, the number seven, when you hear the number seven in Revelation, I want you to think this word, ready? It's really complicated. Seven, perfect. And you're going to find the word seven, if you read carefully, 31 times in the book of Revelation, you'll find the number seven. 
And it points to perfection. This scroll, the account of what is to come, is perfect. It's unchangeable. It's fixed. It's established in the sovereign will of God. But because it is sealed up, it's not only fixed, but it's also hidden. And in order for that to be revealed, the seals must be broken. And that's the thing that captures John's attention secondly, this proclamation of the mighty angel who says, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And it's as if a hush falls over the throne room of heaven, and everybody looks around, and there's none found worthy. Not merely to look at the contents to discover what is in that scroll, but rather symbolically who is worthy to open it and to accomplish that which is written in the scroll. And the reality is there is no angel, no human, no creature in all of heaven or on earth who is able to open the scroll or to look into it. It emphasizes that truth we read in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, which says that the secret things belong to our Lord and God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children that we may follow the words of His law. The secret thing are God's. We creatures cannot look into that scroll. So no one is found worthy. God's kingdom cannot be advanced by human effort. Not even angels can carry out his purposes. And John sees this, and and he begins to weep loudly, verse 4, and and one of the elders responds, don't weep. It's interesting. Why would John weep? Why, Why would it matter? Well, If you look back at chapter 4, Jesus said, come up here and I will show you everything that must take place. And if we're correct in what the scroll is, and I think we are, he's looking at that scroll and saying, that's what Jesus wants to show me and nobody can open it. Will we ever know? And how will God's purposes be accomplished? But the elder, one of the 24 elders makes this joyful proclamation. There is one who is worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The reason he can do so is because he conquered sin and death. Jesus alone is uniquely qualified to open the scroll and to break those seven seals. Now, I want you to notice John's use, uh, choice of words here. Verse 2, who is worthy to open the scroll? Verse 3, no one is able. Speaking of not simply qualification, but of power, of ability. Verse 4, no one again was found worthy. But then verse 5, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. No one in all creation, no created being, no angel in heaven. And I say this very reverently. If the reason that Jesus can open the seal is because he was slain, because he conquered sin and death, then we could justly conclude that not even God the Father or God the Spirit could open that scroll. It was given to the Lord Jesus alone, just like the cross was given to the Lord Jesus alone. He alone is given authority to execute the sovereign 
decrees of God. He is called the lion, excuse me, the lion of the tribe of Judah. These are messianic names taken from the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 49, as Jacob is dying and he pronounces a blessing on each of his sons, he speaks of Judah and refers to the lion to come, emphasizing ruling and reigning in power, the dignity, the majesty, the greatest, the king of the beasts. Well, in the tribe of Judah was King David. And the root of David, we know, is, of course, the Lord Jesus. We read about in Isaiah chapter 11. And again, throughout Revelation, we have over 200 references or allusions to the Old Testament. And we can't understand Revelation if we don't understand our Old Testament. And so here we have Jesus the Messiah, the root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John turns looking, expecting to see a lion, and he sees rather a lamb. And it's a lamb who has been slain. And this lamb is the heart, the focus of John's heavenly vision. Please notice how Jesus is described here. He is described as a lamb having been slain. Now, 27 times in Revelation, Jesus is called the Lamb. But the emphasis here is that he's the Lamb who was slain. And that image is an Old Testament image of the sacrificial Lamb slain for the people of God. Year after year, uh, the, the Passover Lamb is slain. His blood is shed that, our, uh, that, 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 that the wrath of God might pass over his people. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John the Baptist said. He made atonement once and for all. He paid for all of our sins. There's none left for us to pay for. He redeemed us from sin and from death by his own precious blood, bearing the wrath of God that you and I deserve. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah tells us. So here we have Jesus, the lamb who was slain, standing between or among the throne and the living creatures and the 24 elders as the central figure in this vision. All attention in heaven and on earth is placed on the Lord Jesus. And John says he has seven horns and seven eyes. Now, it's really important at this point that we recognize the symbolic nature of this language. You would not want to try to draw a picture of a lamb who has been slaughtered, who has seven horns and seven eyes, a a mutated lamb that has a mortal wound. That's not what John wants us to envision. He wants to envision what each of those things represents. There's nothing glorious about a slaughtered lamb. It was a bloody endeavor at the temple when oxen and lambs and bulls were killed to make atonement for the sins of Israel. It was, it was a mess. But John is taking us back to that Old Testament symbol, the lamb who was slain. But he speaks of these seven horns, these seven eyes. Not, not that we're supposed to think of a mutated lamb, but the horns symbolize Jesus' power and his authority. Seven, of course, is perfection. If someone has perfect power and authority, we say he is omnipotent. The eyes, seven eyes, perfection symbolize Jesus' knowledge, his wisdom, his insight. If he has perfect knowledge and wisdom and insight, we say he is omniscient. He sees and knows everything. 
And John tells us here, these seven horns and seven eyes, or maybe the seven eyes only, are the seven spirits of God going throughout the earth. And of course, in chapter 1, the seven spirits of God refers to the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, the, the Spirit came upon Jesus as a dove, and He was filled with the Spirit. He also is the one who sends us the Spirit. But notice that He is the Lamb who has slain and who has conquered. He has absolute power absolute wisdom, absolute knowledge. One of the commentators, Robert Mounts, said any attempt to visualize or to to make a stained glass image of a seven-horned, seven-eyed lamb in a totally literal fashion should remind us of the symbolic nature of John's visions. The throne room scene is not a graphic description of heaven. Okay, this is not what heaven looks like per se, in other words. It's a symbolic representation of of the decrees of God concerning the final stages of human history. And I would add to that to the glory of God as well. So don't get lost in the details of all these symbols. But rather, fix your eyes, fix your attention on the Lord Jesus Christ with the eye of faith. Consider who He is, what He's like, what He's done. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is our conquering King. He is the root of David. He's the promised Messiah. Messiah meaning prophet, priest, and king. Teaching us and revealing God to us. Ruling over us and protecting us. Making atonement for our sins as our priest. And interceding for us. He's the one who has all wisdom, all power, all authority. Who rules over his creation and executes his sovereign decrees. This is Jesus. And that is the significance that must be behind in our thoughts when we read verse 7. The one worthy to take the scroll says, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. What's happening here? This is symbolic of the fact that all authority is given over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some would even say this is Jesus' coronation after his ascension. He ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, and he is, he is, uh, he's his coronation. He enters into his kingly reign as the crucified, resurrected, victorious Lamb of God. But that's exactly what Jesus told us when he was on the earth. Remember, he said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Or in John chapter 3, Verses 35 and 36, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on Him. Or again, in John chapter 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, right before He goes to be crucified, His last time in the upper room with His disciples, and He begins to pray, and He says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you, for you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given to him. Paul affirms the very same thing in Ephesians 1.22. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church. You see, the church is in view, and he is ruling over everything for the benefit 
of his people. Jesus alone from eternity rule and reign in heaven as God. And in time, he became man. And he suffered. And he died to pay for our sins. And he rose triumphant. He conquered sin and death. Jesus alone is the mediator between God and man interceding for us before the throne of grace. Jesus alone is able to carry out the redemptive plan of God for his people. Jesus alone is able to break the seals and open the scrolls and scroll and execute what is written in it. He said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, because of that, go make disciples of all the nations. So here in verse 7, we find Jesus ascending to the throne, taking from his Father that scroll symbolizing that all authority is being handed over to him to carry out the eternal decrees of God. And when he does so, all the creatures in heaven and earth bow to him. That's what John sees. That's the vision of heaven. And now we see this this glorious worship that breaks out of the Lamb in uh, in verse 8 and following. And John really describes three cycles or choruses of worship. It begins in verse 8 with the four creatures and the 24 elders. And then in verses 11 and 12, it expands this vast multitude, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of angels. And then in verses 11 and 12, or excuse me, 13 and 14, it extends even to every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, and they're bowing to not only the Lord Jesus, to him who's on the throne, and to the Lamb, God the Father. So let's look, first of all, these four creatures, these 24 elders, saying to the Lord Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Look what they did. They fell down before the Lord. They prostrate themselves. They are consumed with the glory of God. Their worship was all-consuming. Their worship engaged every fiber of their being. Look what they had. Each one is holding a harp, and they're holding golden bowls full of incense. Now, the harps, is, they're instruments of, of music, of praise. That would, we'd expect that. The golden bowls of incense, he tells us, are the prayers of the saints. Now, Christian, hear me. Have you ever felt like every time I pray, it feels like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling? I, I don't, don't feel like God is hearing my prayers. Well, this tells me, yes, he is. And your prayers are being stored up, and they're being placed in these bowls, and they are a fragrant aroma. They are sweet incense to the Lord Jesus himself. And they sing. They sing a new song. In chapter 4, they're worshiping God for the glory of creation. Here in chapter 5, they're worshiping the Lord Jesus for the glory of the new creation. It's a new song, a song of the new covenant sealed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the theme is his worthiness. In chapter 4, it speaks of God is thrice holy. And then he says, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because of creation. 
Here in chapter 5, the lamb is worthy because he was slain. He's worthy to open the scroll to fulfill the plan of God because he alone accomplished redemption. This new song is the gospel. He was slain. He died a sacrificial death on the cross. His death accomplished redemption for his people. Again, look at verse 9. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. It doesn't say you provided a ransom or you made it possible. It says you ransomed a people. It is actual, not possible. It's actual, not potential. And he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The whole earth is to be filled with the knowledge of God. And he didn't just purchase us and set us free from sin. He made us a kingdom and priests to serve our God. In the Old Testament, Israel was the kingdom of the Lord. It was the kingdom of God. And one of the 12 tribes was the tribe of Levi. And the Levites were the servants in the temple. And from among the Levites came the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. But in the New Testament, the church, we are the kingdom of God. We are the Israel of God. We are a kingdom. And all of us, not just a select few, all of us are priests in the service of God. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous night, light. Not just a chosen race and a, royal, uh, a glorious nation, holy nation, but a royal priesthood. Hear me, if you're a Christian, Jesus has given to you a position of dignity, of privilege. And the more you realize what he has done for you, what you possess in Christ, that inspires in us worship and praise and confidence and trust. The more you understand what Jesus has done for you, the more free you are to trust in him as you live in this world written down on the scroll, but from our perspective, is filled with uncertainty. And he says, he's purchased us and we will reign on the earth. And that's, that's exactly what was lost when Adam sinned. We were to rule the earth and subdue it, but when Adam sinned, that orderly rule of the earth was destroyed, and chaos entered in. Jesus calls us to overcome, to conquer, to share in his triumph. And here is the declaration that that actually happens. We defeat Satan. We defeat the kingdom of darkness because Jesus won that victory for us. We rule and we reign in him. These are blessings that he purchased for us when he died for us on the cross, purchased with his own blood. So that's the first chorus, the first cycle of praise, but it expands to a multitude of angels, myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands of angels, and they bow down and they worship. Look at the sevenfold doxology in verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Why do you think there are seven attributes here? My guess is to emphasize the perfection of Jesus. So I said there are 37 
or 31 or however many references to the number seven, this one doesn't count because it doesn't say seven, it just is seven. And we don't need to look at each one of these elements and, and, and try to unpack them. That's not the point. Rather, it's the recognition that Jesus is infinitely worthy. And so we rest in his power. We draw from those infinite resources of his wealth and the riches of Christ. We rely on his wisdom to guide us and lead us in paths of righteousness. We are enabled by his mighty power. We can do all things through him who gives us strength. And because of these things, we reflect back to him. We return to him honor and glory and blessing. Let me ask you this. Does Jesus need to receive honor and glory and blessing from you? Does he need that from us? Paul said to the Athenians in Acts 17, he doesn't need to receive anything from us. He's perfectly sufficient in himself. But he is worthy. He deserves it. We owe that to him as it were. He is worthy for us to glory and exalt in his power and wisdom and his wealth and his might. And when we do so, that translates in our lives into things like trust and rest and the fear of God in a healthy way and true worship. He is worthy that you and I stand amazed and wonder at who he is. And then we find this third cycle of worship where every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and even in the sea join in the chorus of praise. Now, let me hasten to say a couple of things here. The fish in the sea don't speak. All right? This is not to be taken literally. This is to be taken expansively and symbolically of all creation, bringing praise to God. But I want you to listen as I read this. And I just want you to, to soak this in. All right? I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying. So it's not just the birds with sweet songs. It's speaking as it were, to him who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. How is such a thing possible? Because he's God. But notice, here we have this picture of Jesus, ostensibly at his coronation. Now, interestingly, there's Twelve elders representing the Old Testament church. Twelve representing the New Testament church because of the twelve apostles. When was Jesus ascended into heaven and sitting at, ascending to the right hand of the throne of God? The apostles were all still alive at that point. So we want to be careful that we're not trying to lay out timelines here. We're not trying to say exactly when did this happen. We're looking at heaven. We're looking at the reality and the glory of God. And so... We recognize we live in a world of sin. We live in a world where men and women and boys and girls are hostile to the idea of a holy God. They hate the idea of a Jesus who claims to be the one and only way to salvation. They despise the idea of a God who would rule over them and have a claim of authority over their lives. And yet here we have a preview of the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Now, there's a, a really wonderful evidence here of the deity of Jesus Christ. It says, every creature in heaven and earth, under the sea, all that is in them said, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, to the Father and to the Son, be blessing, honor, and glory and might forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Is there any question that Jesus, as well as God the Father, are being worshiped in this chapter? Now, why does that matter? Turn with me to John 19, uh, Revelation 19 real quickly. Revelation 19. Verse 9. John has heard this glorious proclamation of the wedding supper of the Lamb. In verse 9, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down to his feet to worship him. And I want you to notice very carefully the angel's response when John does that. I fell down to worship the angel, and he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Don't worship an angel. Don't worship a created being. Worship God alone. And here we have all of heaven worshiping Jesus. Powerful, powerful declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is receiving worship on the very same level as God the Father. Blessing and honor and glory and might are His forever and ever. And the elders fall down and they worship, saying, Amen. So be it. Now, Lord willing, next week we're going to go into chapter 6 where Jesus begins to break those six of the seven seals. But I want us to Spend just a few minutes considering what should we take home from what we've just read. How should this vision of heaven and the worship of the Lamb and of the Father in heaven, how should the glory of Jesus exalted here impact our lives? Well, first of all, recognize that the worship of heaven is a compelling guide for us in our worship here on earth. It, this is like our warm-up, our practice for what we'll be doing in heaven. So we want to model our worship as much as we can, as closely as we can, to the worship of heaven. And the first thing I want you to see is the worship of heaven is all-consuming. Nobody's distracted. Nobody's yawning. Nobody's not participating. Every person who is supposed to worship there does so. Every creature focuses on the glory and majesty and power of Christ, absorbed in his praise. And notice also, the catalyst for their worship is the gospel. It's the lamb who was slain, his redemption, his triumph over our sin and death. Our, the worship of heaven is inspired by who God is and what he has done, specifically what he has done in redeeming us for himself. Stephen Sharnock, one of the great Puritans, said, worship is an act of the understanding, applying itself to the knowledge of the excellency of God and actual thoughts of his majesty. And I would add to that actual thoughts and meditation of his saving work. These five songs in chapter 4 and 5, they're not emotional uh, uh, exercises to conjure up a bunch of sweet feelings, but rather it's a robust reflection on the glory of God, the person of God, the works of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus 
who truly understand this are going to worship with exuberant song. I love hearing the way you sing. And we sing certain songs with, with more exuberance because they seem to draw more from us because they, they, they express these core realities in such precious ways. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part by the hall, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. It is well. It is well. We, we don't sing that in a tepid, timid manner. We sing that out, and we ought to. Second thing I want us to take home with us is that all power and all authority are given to the Lord and our Lord and Savior Jesus. He rules from heaven. He has taken the scroll. He is worthy to break the seals and to execute the plan of God. John says, I will tell you what must, or John is told, I will show you what must take place after this. And what John is getting ready to be shown as we look into chapter 6 and the chapters following, it's cataclysmic. It's apocalyptic in every sense of that word. And it would be disturbing and distressing to a heart that felt like it was coming apart. Now, again, it's important to recognize Jesus is addressing all of this to these seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And those seven churches represent all churches for all time in all places. So he's addressing this to us. And he wants us to keep in mind that whatever we see going on in this world that may be alluded to in chapter 6 and following, we have a Savior, the Lord Jesus. He is the one breaking those scrolls. He is the one, or those seals. He is the one executing what is written down in the scroll. God the Father has decreed these things, and God the Son is carrying them out with his own wisdom and power and authority. And if we understand that Jesus is ruling, He is reigning, that He is in control, then we can trust Him. Through a worldwide pandemic, you can trust Him. Through wars and rumors of wars, you can trust Him. Through rejection or heartbreak or even sorrow and death, you can trust Him. Through the ferocious onslaught of our enemy, Satan, you can trust Him. Through the most severe persecution that this world can foist upon us, we can trust Him. Young people, a week ago you watched a video, The Insanity of God. Hopefully most of you got to see that. It's a, it's a, it's a story chronicling, it's a true story chronicling the, uh, the, the persecution of believers all over the world, things that we would consider unspeakable. I want you to imagine, if you're sitting in the midst of these Russian Christians, or these Chinese Christians, or these Somali Christians who are experiencing unbelievable persecution, and their faith is rock solid, and they're reading Revelation chapter 5. Can you imagine what a great encouragement that is to their hearts that Jesus has taken the scroll and he is opening it and he has the sovereign authority and power to execute God's decrees for the welfare, the benefit of the church. There's comfort there. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And he is ruling and reigning and one day we will reign with him upon the earth, the new earth. So these songs that are sung in heaven are there to inspire new hope for those who are struggling even with hopelessness while we yet live on this earth. Now, you may feel weak. You may feel discouraged or struggling. You may wonder, am I really going to make it? 
You may feel the tremendous strength of the enemy opposing you. You may feel weighed down by your own indwelling sin. But Christian, hear me. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, I don't care how feeble you feel. And no matter how powerful those temptations are to lose hope in the accusation of our enemy, Jesus has all power. Jesus has all authority. He has all wisdom and knowledge. The scroll has been taken into his hand. And he will fully carry out everything in it, including the promise, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He is also the lamb slain for our sins. So when we come to his throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, he doesn't say, you again? What's your problem? He's able to help us, and he's willing. And you may be tempted sometimes. Things just seem chaotic, and you wonder, does it even make sense? I see pain. I see misery. I see evil in the world. I see these things in my own heart sometimes. I see failure even in the church, even among the people of God. How could it possibly make sense? We go back, chapters 2 and 3, and Jesus saw failure in his churches, didn't he? He saw sin and compromise even among those who profess faith in him. There's no surprises to the Lord. He's sovereign over all of it, and he's going to complete the work he has begun. There's not one sorrow, not one affliction, not one trial or difficulty that can touch you that's not written down in that scroll already that he is going to work together with all of his other sovereign purposes for your good and for his glory. There is wonderful purpose in everything that happens to his child. And we can be confident of that, that he will use all those things in our lives, some that don't even make sense, to make us more conformed to the image of his son and more confident in his love and his wisdom and of his power. To more, he'll make us more weaned from our love of the world and our dependence on the world, and he will make us more fit for heaven. That's what he's about. You may weep. John wept. We should never despair. As Pastor Mark told us this morning, Who can separate us from the love of God? And the answer is nobody. God's for us. Who can be against us? Whoever may be against us, it doesn't matter because God is for us. So, Christian, please hear me. You and I have every reason for hope and for confidence, even in the the face of things that might grieve us, break our hearts, weigh us down, because all things are handed over to the Lamb on the throne, and He will fulfill the purposes of God. Let me just say one last thing. If you are not in Christ, you've heard these things and maybe you've just kind of, you're kind of stuffing it down and you're hardening your heart. So like we talked about this morning, when Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord, and he warned us that we must not do the very same thing Pharaoh did, the day is going to come. The day is going to come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we see that happening here. And the reality is there are those who will do so with great joy as we enter into his presence with glory and joy. But there will be those who have steadfastly stood against him and opposed him and hardened their hearts to him, and they will be forced against their will to declare Jesus as Lord to their everlasting shame. I don't want that to be a single person in this room. I don't want that to be you. So my question, will you confess Jesus as Lord with a joyful heart or with a broken and shame-filled heart? 
Will you be one who is conquered with Christ or one who is conquered by Christ? If you're trusting in Christ, you've got nothing to fear. But Revelation holds nothing but terror for those who are not in Christ. It's a terrifying book to read, to really read if you're not in Christ. But see, the Lord Jesus invites us. In fact, at the very end, whoever wants to drink of the water of life, let him come and drink freely. And he invites you. He invites every one of you. If you're not a Christian, if you're a child, young person, maybe an, old per, an older folk that, that everybody thinks you're a believer because you've always said you are, but in your heart you know you're really not. He invites you. Come. Now, I would say this. I'm going to say this. This is what Romans 1 tells us. You know that what I'm telling you is true. You know it's true. The question is, are you willing to entrust yourself to this God who is true? Jesus died to take away the sins of everybody who will ever trust in him, to ransom us for God, to make us new. And you might ask the question, well, yeah, I know, but, but how can I be sure he'll do that for me? I'd like to read to you from Isaiah chapter 55, and with this I'll be finished. Isaiah 55, we find this wondrous invitation. Jesus, or, uh, uh, Isaiah is saying on the part of the Lord is saying through Isaiah, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Return to the Lord, he will have compassion. Turn to the God, he will abundantly pardon. Well, how do I know that? How can I be sure? He doesn't leave us to wonder. He tells us the very next verse. Verse 8, for which is a connecting word. That means the reason I know this is true, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We quote those verses to try to make sense of hard things in our lives that make no sense. These verses are in the Bible to make sense of God's amazing grace that we cannot comprehend. Why would he forgive someone like me? Because his thoughts are higher than your thoughts. How can I be sure? Because his ways are higher than your ways. You might not be inclined to show that kind of mercy, but you and I aren't God. But he is inclined to show that kind of mercy. And he will receive all who come to him. You have his word on it.